It's always fun when it's sunny or slightly sunny and raining at the same time. Uh, yes, we're all very sad that it's not snowing, Artis. West. Yeah, that's not pleasant. Yes. Right. And after uh, we have the discussion of the weather, we'll, we'll have a brief sermon. Um, we, uh, we start this epiphany season, which is really a recognition of, in the season of the church, we all follow a calendar. You've heard me say it before, and we can either follow a calendar that was designed uh, to help us uh, buy greeting cards, or we can uh, follow a calendar that was designed a long time ago uh, by our older brothers and sisters in the faith who thought that it might be useful to have a rhythm of life centered around the life and ministry of Christ as a way to set the rhythms and temperaments of our year to not to have a, a, a religious duty that might earn us credit with God, but just a way to set the rhythms of our lives that center around the great truths of the gospel. And as Epiphany season starts, it is that recognition that the good news of the gospel, as we read in Isaiah, was for not just Jerusalem, but for the coastal nations, which, again, was the beginning of a description of the gospel going around the world. Isaiah foresaw it. So many of the prophets talk about the fulfillment of that initial promise to Abraham when he was still Abram that he would be a blessing to the nations and that the good news of a God who created the universe would be heard in and through all nations of the world. So Epiphany is this acknowledgement that Jesus is king and that the nations are beginning to recognize the lordship, the beauty, the love, and the nature of a kingdom brought about by a God who comes near, brought about by a king who instead of saying, you go fight, goes in our place. And it allows us to unpack all of the rich stories of the Old Testament, which I will try not to do all of them this morning, about how Christ embodies the richness and the promises that fell short in so many of our Old Testament saints, not because we're meant simply to focus on their failures, but to always drive us where Abraham failed, where Joseph failed, where David fails, where Moses fails. We say it was almost there. It was, it was such promise, and yet we need more. We need a leader who will never betray us but always seeks to serve and care for us. This morning, we inaugurate this season uh, by reading the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. I'll read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And this is a familiar passage. This is Jesus' baptism. And there are a number of things going on all at once in this passage. On the one hand, absolutely, Jesus is being baptized into the sin of His people. That what John the Baptist has been doing is calling people to the kingdom of God and telling them to repent of their sins. And of course, Jesus has no sins to repent of, and yet when he submits to the baptism of John, what he's doing is identifying himself, taking on the very sin of his people. And that is, of course, hugely important 
in His whole act of sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. And that is absolutely something that's going on in this text. But it's not what we're going to talk about this morning. Because there's also, in the richness of Scripture, another thing happening. A king is being anointed. A throne is being established. And the powers and principalities of the world are being put on notice. And So that is going to be the emphasis of our reading and understanding of this text this morning. Hear now God's word. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, that is John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for all the fullness of all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and beheld the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look upon this scene, for which ever since the fall, your people and creation had longed to see, the establishment of your king, We pray this morning that as we reflect on the work of your Son and the power of the Spirit filling him, we might be encouraged again of what it means to be your children, to be in your kingdom, and Lord, then to be a part of bringing your kingdom into fruition, Lord, to be your hands and feet. We pray this morning that whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. So I want to encourage you, as we start this sermon, just to assume that it's difficult for us to understand what it is to have a king. That we have lived long enough in liberal democracies, we have become accustomed enough to getting to choose our leaders, and there's even a way in which our Christian faith has been often presented by evangelists in that wonderful sense that is biblical, choose this day whom you will serve. And we have often emphasized our choice in choosing Jesus and accepting him in such a way that it makes it sometimes difficult for us to reflect on what it means to live in a benevolent totalitarian regime. I suppose totalitarian always has a negative connotations, but it is a benevolent dictatorship. Jesus is not seeking election. He is being appointed and ordained by the Father for the purpose of running your life and mine. For the purpose of running creation the way it was designed to be run. Why? Well, because ever since we decided we would get smart enough, that we would understand through Adam and Eve the difference between good and evil, we've kind of made a mess of things. It went kind of poorly. And that's a generous way of putting it. There is a reality that uh, when I don't know how to do something, it's helpful for someone who does know how to do it to teach me. 
to bring me on as an apprentice, to walk alongside me and teach me what it means to take on a particular role and to ignore that instruction and direction. The old language was a master teaching an apprentice. Gosh, that language is hard for us. And so all I'm suggesting is that you think through how likely it is that we're going to reinterpret the kingship of Christ through several hundred years of very different political experiences and a faith that, to a great degree, has been democratized in maybe a way that is not as helpful. Even as the gospel honors each one of us, as we've already prayed, created in the image of God, individually and uniquely knit together in God's uh, providence and in his loving hand. He made Adam. He made Eve. He slowed down. He just didn't speak them into existence. He made them with his hands. We're supposed to understand that absolutely each one of us is a unique experience of God's creative act and he has a unique plan for you. And at the same time, in the midst of that uniqueness, your king and your God wants you to know what it is to be his children and to pursue his goals, to pursue his ends, because that is what we were created to do. And so because of that challenge and that notion of kingship being a little foreign, I, I want to just place that little mental stop in your mind when you read King, uh, when we talk about this, that we're not just talking about the leftover shambles of the royal family in England, which is kind of fun for us to think about and, uh, and, and be a figurehead and talk about, but a royal family that rules and reigns. So how do we know this is what's happening? Well, of course, uh, there is Isaiah's prophecy, which we read in Isaiah 52. I will anoint, I will put my spirit in, and he will do what? He will do the business of justice and mercy. He will bring the ethics of who God is, a God who is merciful and just, into a world which is far from merciful or just, which works on the principle of kill or be killed. Cain established that early on. It is this notion that if I am going to succeed, chances are you're going to have to fail. And Jesus is inaugurated in the midst of this by John the Baptist who reminds us that he is going to have to decrease so that Jesus can increase. Already the ethics of the kingdom are being borne out. John knows that as Jesus' ministry arrives, of course his disciples should leave John and go follow Jesus because John is going to follow Jesus. In his heart and in his encouragement, John wants to see the king raised up. He knows he's not the king. John is also very clear in his understanding that Jesus is greater than he is. Hence his concern about him baptizing Jesus. But this then goes back to the reality of all royal baptisms, all royal anointings, is that of course the servant ends up anointing the one who is to serve the nation. And so Samuel, the great prophet, 
anoints David. He anoints Saul as well. They are to rule over the nation, but it is Saul's role as a prophet and as a priest to anoint the king. We are supposed to, in the way that Matthew writes this, think back to David's anointing as a boy. Because there's still someone sitting on the earthly throne. There's still Herod. There's still Caesar. And there quietly in the Jordan River, that that symbol and reality of what it is to go through death and into life, the place where all of Israel was baptized as they entered into the promised land, there is Jesus being anointed as a king over the nations by John the Baptist in the midst of the fact that the worldly powers still believe themselves to be well entrenched and in authority. We live in a time, even today, where there is a denial of the lordship and kingship of Christ. We live where we are giving loyalty, much as David's followers did, to a king who has, yes, established his throne in heaven, but it's not fully present here. We don't see it in the same way that those who are gathered around the throne in the throne room of grace see Jesus seated in the throne. It hasn't come fully to bear here yet. We're waiting for its impact. We're looking for it, but we live like it's true. So Jesus here is anointed the king, set apart to do the work of the king, even in the midst of one who, Paul will tell us, is appointed by God and yet rules unrighteously. Referring to the fact that Paul points in Romans to the fact that, look, there is no earthly authority that God has not put in authority. Nobody gets authority without being given by God. Jesus reminds us of this in his trial when he speaks to Pilate. You think you have control? You don't have control unless it's given to you by another. Those earthly authorities constantly want to war against the righteous authority of God that brings justice and mercy to all. So Jesus is baptized. He's baptized and then he does what? He goes out with the blessing of God like we do every week. This is my son in who I am well pleased. The spirit descends upon him. That's really what we're trying to do when we send the benediction and send you out every week is that in the midst of having been reminded of who you are in Christ, you're sent out every week with the power and encouragement to go bring the kingdom into the wilderness. Jesus is sent out right after this uh, part of the narrative into the wilderness. And what does he do? He succeeds where both Israel's rulers and its people regularly fail throughout the Old Testament. Where Satan comes and says, you could use the gifts that God has given you to provide for yourself. You need bread? Get bread. You want, turn turn these rocks into bread. You want power? Come to me. I give power a lot easier than God does. God's going to nail you to a cross. All you got to do is kneel down to me. Do you not trust God? Fling yourself off. See if he's going to show himself to be faithful. 
Maybe you can passively, aggressively manipulate God by flinging yourself off and seeing if he'll catch you as you test him yet again. Use your power. Use his love for you. Use your ability to provide for yourself. And then sometimes recognize that God is just a really hard taskmaster. And I, Satan, the tempter, I'm a lot easier. I wouldn't make you do all that hard stuff. David grew weary, didn't go out to war when he should have, didn't do his job. Problems ensue. God's people are tempted by the bounty of the land, begin to think it's their activity that gave them the milk and honey. And the lordship of Christ, the lordship of God, sorry, in the Old Testament, becomes a a waning memory. What Jesus does is he shows himself to be the true king. He finishes what David began. He finishes what Israel was called to do. He is both their ruler and Israel in one. He wears both hats. He is both them and their king. And he fulfills all righteousness, both as a ruler and by identifying himself with you and me. Which is what Isaiah is getting at when he stresses the fact that he will, first of all, do his work in a way that is quiet and powerful. Right? That phrase, he doesn't cry out in the streets. There is a certain way in which Isaiah is reflecting upon those who are loud and exert power and strength through taking hold of the central places in a town by their voice and by their physical activity. And notice what Isaiah says. The way this kingship will go forward, the way he does his work, is going to be quiet because he's not going to overpower and run over people. He's not going to assert power by force. He's going to do it through justice and mercy, which is why he doesn't end up bruising and destroying somebody who's already hurting. He doesn't extinguish the wick in the quickness of his activity. But he breathes life back in because he serves and cares, and often that happens not in the places of earthly power, but in the places of kingdom transformation. People's hearts and lives and relationships. All righteousness to be fulfilled is not simply Jesus not sinning and then dying. It is also the act of him doing righteousness in and through his ministry and bringing what Isaiah prayed for, which was justice and mercy to be the staples of God's people, to be the calling card of his people. That being established, John recognizes that it is his role. Not because he's better than Jesus, but because he's been set apart to be the one who helps set Jesus apart. And as he does that, there is a clear vision of what also God is doing in and through that sign. 
and the coming down of the Holy Spirit. And that is what leads us into our passage in Acts. Because what Peter experiences as he's there among the Gentiles in Cornelius' house is that not only has the Holy Spirit been poured out on Jesus, but he's just experienced it being poured out on the 120 in the upper room. And they're so excited to see what had been promised in Joel that their young men were dreaming dreams and their young women and they were prophesying and they were speaking in tongues and God was blessing by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then he walks over and gets into a Gentile house and the Holy Spirit gets poured out again. The promise of Isaiah that the coastal lands would hear. The power of a king who is not limited to just the people of Israel, but is going to fulfill the promise and the blessing to all nations. And Peter gets a front row seat and is again amazed at how powerful God's love really is because the Gentiles are beginning to understand the nature and the power of God's grace. And we are the recipients, the legacy, the children of that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The beauty of God is not just that he has all of those gifts, not just that Jesus doesn't misuse those gifts on himself, but that he pours those gifts out richly on others. Jesus' ministry, he breaks bread and the hungry are fed even though there's not much food. Could Jesus have turned the bread, uh, the stones into bread? Sure. Does he do it? Absolutely. Why? For the glory of God, not for his own sustenance. He pours out the blessings on others. Can he heal those who are sick? Can he catch those who flung themselves off of cliffs? Yes. He heals the demoniacs. He catches Zacchaeus who climbed a tree. He didn't jump down from the tree, but follow my analogy. Zacchaeus flung himself into the arms of Rome as a Jewish man trying to provide for his family, make tons of cash, he had run from God. Will God catch you if you run away? And Jesus catches one lost sheep after another and brings them home. And then in that last temptation, will you go the easy way and avoid the cross? Jesus said yes, and he pours out not just life for himself. It's not just he that becomes the one who's resurrected, but we are promised life eternal, which allows us then to care and love those around us without fear of our lives. Those blessings poured out were never meant to stay within our lives and hearts, but meant to be, again, a blessing to all those around us, the joy of the kingdom. And what the king tells us to do is spend generously what he has given us. Spend generously what he has given us. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Spend it generously. The power, the clarity, the strength. It looks like service to the world. It looks like weakness. It's foolishness. It's foot washing. It's being humiliated by standing next to somebody that everybody else despises. There's all kinds of ways in which being powerful in the Holy Spirit looks like you're weak and a failure. Jesus regularly looked from a worldly perspective like he backed the wrong horse and that he lost. So whatever being powerful in the Holy Spirit means, it probably means to the world looking rather foolish. 
Spend it generously. Who do we associate with? Who are we sharing the love of the gospel with? You won't run out of bread. Be generous. You are co-heirs with Christ. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Do we really need fear? When Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, what you'll eat and drink, that doesn't mean that because he's providentially given me the wisdom to invest in a 403B that I should trust that God will provide that my funds will be multiplied and I can retire at 65. I think the context there is, if you're spending the widow's might, don't worry about getting another Daenerys tomorrow. If you're doing the work of the kingdom, if you're living out of the gospel, not just caring for your family, but caring for our neighbors, don't worry about running out. When you do the work of the kingdom, the economy of the kingdom kicks in. Because the king knows what we need to fulfill his mandate in our lives. And then lastly, fearing death. The king is enthroned, he is alive, he's poured out his reality into our lives. I've said this before, but there's something beautiful about uh, the, the way in which the martyrs and those who died in the early church who were caring for those in the plagues, those who today risk their lives to go into places where there's Ebola or AIDS in Africa and serve those in need, is that there is a way in which at our best as Christians, we hold our own lives loosely. And we prize the lives of others. Because of the resurrection, we're able to hold on to our own lives loosely. They're in his hands. And yet, because we are a people of life and resurrection, we value the life of others more. We're able to extend ourselves on their behalf, risk our own lives and reputations for the other because we are confident that our lives are hid with him. And to extend that care then for those whose lives maybe are less secure. To honor life even as we hold on to ours loosely. That's the kingdom that Jesus inaugurates. That's the way he breaks down the walls of all of our fears about having a king. We go back to the beginning of the sermon. Our mindset about kings, there was a reason we rebelled. There was a reason we implemented democracy because earthly kings can be rather horrid and they do have a tendency to feed themselves rather than feed their people. And so we rightly are fearful of a king because of what historically kings have done. And yet Jesus inaugurates a kingdom that's completely reversed. It's a king who gives himself for his people who shares the generosity that they might have life and delight in it. To follow this king, yes, will be a stretch. Yes, it will be exhausting physically. But there is life and light. We follow a king who will be a challenge because, yes, it speaks against our fears and our immediate needs. And yet we all know That in the end, a king that points us towards life 
and gives us the resources to share life is a king worth saying, your will be done. Better than my own. Your kingdom come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you again that you do break down our understandings of what earthly kings are. Allow us to trust in again and then a sovereign and a God who tells us with all wisdom and love how we might fulfill who we were created to be and in so doing, bringing glory to your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.